Hi, thanks for joining me. It's been a while. A lot has happened since my last episode, mostly good things. I hope you've been well. I've been looking forward to returning to my listeners, and I thank you for being one of them. Just to catch you up, I'm Chad Mortensen, and I'm interested first and foremost in amazing factual stories. This podcast definitely has a true crime thread throughout it, but as you listen, you'll find elements of pop culture, history, and my overall love and appreciation for the Western United States and the events that brought it to where it is today. I live in Utah, but I love to travel to and explore any destination that I find interesting, whether it's in my home state or not. The story of this episode will take us back to the late 60s. We will return again to today, and along the way, we'll visit a few time periods in between. It'll take us to the heat of Death Valley, and we'll pass by the streets of London. We'll walk through a museum in Las Vegas, and we'll visit a prison, a hospital, and two ranches. Welcome to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West, Episode 15, Deep in Death Valley, Charlie's Last Stand. On Saturday, January 20th, 1968, in the Chelsea area of London, Polish film director Roman Polanski married actress Sharon Tate. They were both working hard in their respective careers and having some success. Polanski, who had already made a name for himself directing movies like Knife in the Water, Repulsion, and Cul-de-Sac, was a director on the rise and was being sought after by producers in Hollywood. In 1967, Tate met Polanski in London while the two were working on the film The Fearless Vampire Killers. Tate had been dating hairstylist Jay Sebring for quite some time, and Sebring had even proposed to her, but she declined, saying she would quit acting when she became a wife and a mother, and she wasn't ready to give up on her career just yet. Roman and Sharon weren't incredibly impressed with each other when they first met, but as they spent time together, they began to form a bond which eventually led to romance. So, as it turned out, what she had told Jay wasn't entirely the truth. She accepted Roman's proposal and she did not give up acting, even when she would become pregnant in January of 1969. She found in Roman just what she was looking for, someone to whom she could be married and still fulfill her dream of being an actress. Jay was heartbroken. He and Sharon would remain close friends, literally, to their dying day. They would be in the same room together when they died. At Sharon and Roman's wedding in Chelsea, many of the most famous actors, models, and musicians of the day were looking on as the newlyweds held a reception at the Playboy Club. Joan Collins, Warren Beatty, Mick Jagger, Peter Sellers, and Jacqueline Bissett, to name a few. Michael Caine was there with Candace Bergen. London. Two top film folk got spliced and the press and public turned out in force. He's Polish-born director Roman Polanski. She's American actress Sharon Tate. And the huge public interest their wedding created shows that the magic of motion pictures is as strong today as ever. After the ceremony at Chelsea Registry Office, the mini-gowned bride and the mod-geared mate made for the Playboy Club and a star-studded reception. 
Money's lavished champagne on some of the top names in show business. John Mills and daughter Julie. Behind the fuzz, Lawrence Harvey. James Fox and delicious friend. Joan Collins and Anthony Newley. Two-fisted Terry Downs, and from sedate Peyton Place, Barbara Parkins. Michael Caine keeping company with very dishy Candice Bergen. Ironically, Candice Bergen would be dating record producer Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day, the following year when the two would live for a brief time at 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, just north of Beverly Hills the very house that would catch Charles Manson's attention when he didn't get the record deal he wanted and would spur his family of killers to commit murder there in the early morning of August 9, 1969. Five people were murdered that night at Cielo. One of them was Sharon Tate. It's a small world. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Among the other victims were Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Authorities would allow no one in an unofficial capacity inside the posh $200,000 home in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. Angeles. Polyansky, who directed Rosemary's Baby and other films of suspense, reportedly is in Europe. One of the first officers on the scene, Police Sergeant Stanley Conrad. Well, at the scene we had uh, one body in a vehicle near the gate, a man and a woman in the main room, and a man and a woman on the lawn in front of the house. All deceased. A more detailed account of the Manson murders can be found in episodes three and four of Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West. This past weekend, I was in Las Vegas for the Pac-12 football championship game, where the Utah Utes would come away victorious by the score of 38-10 over the 10th-rated Oregon Ducks to win their first-ever Pac-12 championship trophy. I was excited for the game to be certain, but the place I visited the following day at 600 East and Charleston in downtown Las Vegas was a place that I had been looking forward to visiting for quite some time. Zach Bagan's The Haunted Museum is a place that will stay with you for days after you leave it. It hasn't left me yet. It's a place where the afterlife is brought to life and the line between life and death is extremely thin. Some of the items you'll find there are Jack Gavorkian's death van, the very late 60s Volkswagen van in which many of his 130-plus assisted suicides actually took place. It was surreal to stand next to a vehicle in which dozens and dozens of human beings were assisted in taking their own lives. There are two human heads in the museum. One is from the 1600s in Scotland, and the other is a head of a dwarf that was preserved in a jar in the early 20th century, making it just over 100 years old. There is a room with Ed Gein's death cauldron in it, the very cauldron he used to melt the body parts of those he dismembered in the small town of Plainfield, Wisconsin back in the 50s. There is a literal sample of human skin on the wall in that room as well. He would make furniture out of the skin of his victims. True story. Gain would be the inspiration for many films, the most notable of which were Psycho, 
the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and The Silence of the Lambs. The museum is full of creepy puppets and movie props. The clown from Poltergeist is there. You know, the one who reaches out from underneath the bed of little Robbie Freeling and attempts to choke him. The idea of that clown doll would keep me up nights as a child. Still does. A proton pack and Egon Spangler suit from the original 1984 Ghostbusters are there as well. Cult leader David Koresh's 1968 Chevy Camaro in perfect condition is there. It's a beautiful car. Many of us remember watching the TV on that fateful day back in April 1993 as the compound at Mount Carmel, Texas, where Koresh was holed up with his followers, went up in flames after a two-month siege with the FBI. Incidentally, the bombing of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms building in Oklahoma City, orchestrated by Timothy McVeigh, would be exactly two years to the day from the day the compound in Waco was destroyed. McVeigh planned it that way on purpose. A mirror from the stateroom of Edward Smith, the captain of the Titanic, is also there. The mirror is said to be haunted. As are the pieces of a table and artwork from the Splendor, the ship owned by Robert Wagner and his wife Natalie Wood, that they were floating on near Catalina Island with Christopher Walken on one fateful night in late November 1981 when the famous actress drowned. I visited her grave at the Westwood Village Memorial Park south of Los Angeles. It's a peaceful place where another individual referred to in episodes one and two of this podcast has his final resting place as well, one Truman Capote. Oh, and I need to mention that the shorts and the polo shirt that Capote, my favorite author, was wearing on August 25th, 1984 when he died from complications due to liver failure from drug and alcohol abuse are also in the Haunted Museum in Vegas. Don Knotts is buried not 15 feet from Capote in that same memorial park south of Los Angeles. Original John Wayne Gacy artwork in which he literally painted portraits of himself dressed as Pogo the Clown are in Zach Bagan's museum as well. Gacy was known for killing and burying 27 young men and boys in the crawl space under his house in Des Plaines, Illinois in the 70s. Three more were found in other parts of his property because he ran out of space in the crawl space. There are sections devoted to Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker who terrorized the Los Angeles area in 1985. And of course, there is a Ted Bundy section. One of the actual ski masks he would wear in committing his crimes is in the museum, as is his duffel bag kill kit, complete with cords, rope, and garbage bags. He would keep that duffel bag in his Volkswagen Beetle with him nearly all the time, in case the urge to kill would arise. The hospital gown that Charles Manson was wearing at Kern County Hospital in Bakersfield, California, where he died on November 19, 2017 of a heart attack and respiratory failure that was connected to colon cancer, is housed in the Haunted Museum as well, as are some of Charles Manson's ashes. That takes us back to square one and the core of this episode's story. The final item from Zach Bagan's The Haunted Museum in Las Vegas that I would like to mention is the very wedding dress that Sharon Tate wore when she married Rowan Polanski way back in January of 1968. Zach bought the dress for $56,000 in an auction back in 2018. It's not part of the Manson exhibit. Zach didn't want the dress near the Manson items out of respect for her and her family. As I stood in front of Sharon's high-necked, cream-colored mini dress 
that she wore on the day of her wedding, I couldn't help but think of the fact that that very dress was likely in the closet of her bedroom at 10050 Cielo on that night in August in 1969 when she and three of her very close friends were brutally murdered both in the living room and outside on the lawn. It's very possible, in fact, that the dress could have been on display in her bedroom and may have been a witness to Abigail Folger running down the hall to escape Patricia Krenwinkel's knife just moments before she died. Let's go back to August 1969, which will essentially make this part three in the series of episodes I've done on the Manson murders. Parts one and two are episodes three and four of this podcast. I felt I needed to round out the story. The story of Charles Manson's capture in Death Valley is nearly as interesting as the murders themselves. The way his capture played out and the places in which the story would happen will be the focus of the rest of this episode. I've mentioned previously and I want to reiterate that every episode in Saints and Sinners True Crime and the History of the West that I've done up to this point are stories of places that I have actually visited. I knew I couldn't finish off the Death Valley portion of the Manson story without actually having visited Death Valley for myself. I did so in July of this year. You might think that Death Valley is hot on the 4th of July, the day that I was there, and you would be absolutely correct. It got up to 124 degrees, by far the hottest temps this Salt Lake City boy has ever experienced in person. I made sure I had a full pack of bottled water, satellite radio, and plenty of gas in the SUV. But why did I visit Death Valley? What does Death Valley have to do with the story of the Manson family? In July and August of 1969, three heinous crimes would take place. All involved murder, and two of them would involve multiple murders. On July 31st of that year, Gary Hinman, a musician and drug dealer, was found dead in his house at 964 Old Topanga Canyon Road. He had been stabbed twice in the heart and badly slashed across the side of his face. His house had been ransacked, and both of his cars were missing. Scrawled on the wall in Hinman's blood were the words, Political Piggy. The police had absolutely no reference point in the early investigation of the murder, and nothing and no one to tie the murder to. There are multiple opinions on a motive in the killing, but down the line it would be proven that the Manson family was responsible. According to testimony given later by Manson himself, Hinman was killed over money and property that Manson claimed Hinman owed to the family. This much was true. During the multiple day ordeal at the Topanga Canyon home that would mark the end of Hinman's life, present were Charles Manson, who left before the murder actually took place, but did give direction on how to carry it out. Bruce Davis, another Manson family member, as well as the trio of Susan Atkins, Mary Bruner, and Bobby Boussoulet. Those were the last three people to see Gary Hinman alive. This murder would officially mark the beginning of Helter Skelter, the race war that Manson told his followers would culminate in an all-out war of blacks versus whites, and would leave Manson, the leader at the end, where he would take his followers to a cave in the desert and they would be safe. The theory was to commit multiple murders and make it look like they had been committed by blacks against the white establishment. Then, a retaliation would ensue, leading to all-out war. The Manson family's path to Death Valley had begun. This story is one of two bookends, each involving the family's stay at a ranch. The first being Spawn Ranch, 
where the family had been staying since 1968 when Manson had a falling out with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys due to a failed record deal. Yeah, that's true. The family had been staying for some time in Dennis Wilson's home, the other bookend being Barker Ranch, a place of escape deep in Death Valley, where the family would end up after the murders had been committed, and I would end up in July of this year. Spawn Ranch, the first bookend of Helter Skelter, was an old ranch used as a film set for westerns. It was high in the hills above Chatsworth, California, fairly close in fact to Calabasas, where retired basketball star Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, along with seven others, would die in a helicopter crash on January 26, 2020. On August 5th, less than a week after the Hinman murder, the California Highway Patrol found Bobby Boussoulet napping in the rear of Hinman's Fiat station wagon, a few hours to the north of Topanga, near San Luis Obispo. Bobby was disheveled and told the police that the car had broken down while he was driving to San Francisco. He had on him a fake ID and a knife attached to his belt, and with Hinman's vehicle being in Bobby's possession, he was booked for the murder of Gary Hinman. Another lesser known fact about the Hinman murder was that while Charles Manson made a stopover to the Hinman house prior to Gary's demise, the slash on Hinman's face was made not with a knife, but with a sword at the hand of Charles Manson. The murders at the Sharon Tate residence would occur on the night of Friday, August 8th at 10050 Cielo Drive. As I stated before, five people would be killed that night. Wojtek Frakowski, a Polish friend of Roman Polanski's, Abigail Folger, the heiress to the Folger's coffee fortune, 18-year-old Stephen Parent, who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, Jay Sebring, and lastly, Sharon Tate. Charlie had decided early in the afternoon of the 8th that it was time to kick Helter Skelter up a notch, so he gathered Tex Watson and said, I want you to take a couple of girls I'll send with you and go down there and totally destroy everyone in that house. Make it witchy. Make it as gruesome as you can and get all their money. A more detailed account of what would happen that night at the Tate residence and the following night at the La Bianca residence where Lino and Rosemary LaBianca would be killed, is given in episodes 3 and 4 of this podcast. The focus of this episode will be on what happened afterwards. Immediately following the LaBianca murders on the night of August 9th to the 10th, Charles Manson and follower Linda Kasabian traveled several miles together so they could plant the LaBianca's wallets in what Manson thought was a black neighborhood, that of Silmar, California. Then, the two drove to Venice Beach so Manson could commit a second crime that night. Charlie wanted to attack an actor friend of Kasabian's, possibly in retribution for her not having participated in, and only being an onlooker to, the Tate murders the night before. He wanted to make sure Kasabian was involved and could be implicated as well. She would, after all, turn out to be the star witness for the prosecution in the trial for the murders. Kasabian later testified that she acted like she forgot which apartment her friend lived in in order to spare his life. The family all returned to Spawn Ranch early in the morning hours of August 10th, and there they would stay for nearly the next week, trying to not draw any attention to themselves. They would watch television and see the news and the pandemonium that their murder spree was causing to the world, thinking to themselves that they would never be caught. 
The police hadn't yet drawn a connection between the Tate and LaBianca murders. Certain details hadn't been communicated between departments, such as the fact that political piggy had been written on the wall in blood at the Hinman residence, and the word pig was written on the door at the Tate residence. The words helter-skelter and rise were written on the walls and the refrigerator in blood at the LaBianca residence. These dots would be connected later. The police had been monitoring the Manson family for quite some time, not for murder, however, but for auto theft. The family had been stealing VW parts to convert them into dune buggies. Their plan of escape from Spawn Ranch was well underway. They were converting their vehicles to fit a more rugged desert climate and climb the washes of Death Valley to Barker Ranch. Around dawn on Saturday, August 16th, Almost exactly one week after the murders at the Tate residence, police officers raided Spawn Ranch and arrested Manson and many of his followers. Later, it would be learned that Manson was actually relieved that they were only being charged with theft. Unfortunately, the family was set free on a technicality. The date on the Spawn Ranch search warrant was listed incorrectly. Upon their release, Charlie's first order of business had to do with a man by the name of Shorty. Manson himself was only five foot six, so the nickname would have been more fitting for himself. But nevertheless, Donald Shorty Shea was on Charlie's radar of retribution. Manson was sure that Shorty had been the one to tip off the police prior to the raid at Spawn Ranch. It was said that one night they were all sitting around the campfire at Spawn, and Charlie turned to Shorty and said he wanted to take him for a walk. The two walked out into the darkness in the hills surrounding the ranch, and many would later testify that Manson returned to the campfire by himself, and Shorty was never heard from again. It was later said that Charlie told a few of them that he had decapitated Shorty. Shorty's remains were located near Spawn Ranch in 1977, when Manson and Tex Watson were already in prison, and Bruce Davis was also charged as an accomplice in Shorty's murder. If Manson was in fact the one to have killed Shorty, this would make it the only known murder that he actually carried out himself. All of the other eight murders he only ordered but didn't actually do the killing. To be sure to avoid further raids, Manson quickly moved the family deep into Death Valley, 204 miles to the northeast of Spawn Ranch, to a place called Barker Ranch. Barker Ranch is located in a rocky valley in the Panamint Mountain Range, up at the top of what is known as Golar Wash. The area is quite inaccessible even today. I learned this for myself in July. The narrow dirt road leading up the wash basically requires either an ATV, a side-by-side, -side, or a four-wheel drive vehicle in order to climb it. There are several places where there are actually slick rock climbs. The Panamint Range of Mountains and Golar Wash are nearly in the dead center of Death Valley, technically just outside of the National Park. The town of Ballarat, population one, has a trading post that is open most days of the year. The town's only resident runs the trading post. I met him in July. I was going to record my conversation with him, but my phone literally died from overheating right as I walked into the trading post. It was 124 degrees outside after all. I had been walking around in the heat, checking out the jail that is in Ballarat, the one they kept Manson in the first night after he was captured. Supposedly his signature was scrawled on the wall somewhere, but I couldn't find it. 
There's also an old Dodge Power Wagon parked just outside the post that was said to have been used by Tex Watson in an escape attempt from the family in September of 1969. But he was said to have gotten stuck in the salt flats just past the mouth of Golar Wash and had to walk back up to the ranch with his head hanging low. I had to keep my phone in the shade and the AC in my car for nearly 20 minutes afterwards to get it working again. Here is the lead up to my conversation with Ballarat's only resident and the worker at the trading post before the recording stopped. Good man, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty cool, it's a hot one, huh? <laughs> yeah, where are you heading? He was kind and asked me what I was driving to be certain I could make it. He said not to push it too hard, but to head back if I didn't think I could make it the whole way. He made sure I had enough water as well. Butch and Helen Thomason began construction on Barker Ranch in the late 1930s. The couple was getting older and in retirement. They wanted to try their hand at prospecting and have a retreat that they could go to to relax far away from the hustle and bustle of the City of Angels. The Barker family bought the property in 1956 and expanded the cabin into a larger house. So there was the larger house and several smaller cabins, a chicken coop, corrals, a makeshift swimming pool made from nearby rocks, and a neighboring ranch to the east. Myers Ranch. There were only two ways into the ranch, Golar Wash, approaching from the west, and Coyote Canyon, approaching from the northeast. The road through Coyote Canyon was wider, and Golar Wash was extremely narrow and kept the ranch well hidden and tough to access. Charles Manson and his family of followers arrived at Barker Ranch in late August of 1969, just weeks after their murder spree. Shorty's body had been buried near Spawn Ranch, but it was thought for years that there could have been other family members killed at Barker as well. Others who might have upset Charlie. In fact, in early 2009, a search team went to Barker to seek out further evidence of bodies. On the compound of a small adobe ranch house stuck in the extreme heat of the California desert may lie the clues of a criminal madman so extreme that he incited others to commit a rash of murders in the late 1960s, including that of actress Sharon Tate. I think it was just an iconic time in American history, um, you know, both uh, socially and otherwise, because really it was the death of the 60s, and of course the, uh, the women looked like the girls next door. Manson's cult of death picked a ranch in Death Valley National Park to stay in nearly 40 years ago and perhaps left behind more victims. I think our greatest fear is that we're just a few feet off from uh, where any remains would be. So what led authorities to recheck the ranch? A policeman named Paul Dosti. He tracks cold cases and his dog Buster has a nose for finding historic grave sites. Earlier this year, Dosti pursued rumors of more Manson family murders here. Buster smelled trouble, and scientists tested soil samples. The results spurred a crime scene investigation. Finding hidden graves, clandestine graves, is a very difficult task. Uh, this is probably about as difficult a location as you could expect to work in. Mark Wise is one of 20 forensic experts and police officers on the case. The Barker Ranch is an inhospitable arid terrain about 50 miles from any town. The team is using a special tool called LIDAR to collect data from the ground. 
the shape of the evidence, the unit relationship between evidence items, where they're located. They're removing soil inch by inch for analysis. They might inch closer to discovering decades-old cold cases where the innocence of the 1960s was lost. John Moan, the Associated Press, Death Valley National Park, California. Once at Barker, most of the family members thought they were safe, but they simply couldn't stop committing crimes, even in the heat of Death Valley. Had they laid low, they might have been fined, but they committed vandalism and several accounts of Grand Theft Auto. They just couldn't stop. Jim Purcell was both a ranger in Death Valley at the time in 1969 and also in law enforcement. He was interviewed by a local television station a few years after his retirement in 1989 and laid out the story of what would eventually lead to the capture of Manson and his followers. In mid-September of 1969, he was called out to the site of a burned front loader used in road construction within Death Valley. A group of individuals had set it on fire, so they followed some tracks from the site of the vandalism and the road to the capture of Charles Manson would begin. I drove to an area called Hunter Mountain. The park rangers had followed a set of tire tracks, rather unusual, from the site of the burn loader to <clears throat> Hunter Mountain. And uh, I met them there. And at that location, we found a 1969 Ford sedan, partially uh, stripped, uh, hidden in the trees, around the vehicle and in the vehicle, numerous uh, items of female clothing. Uh, we ran the vehicle and it turned out it was a Hertz rent-a-car. It was not reported as stolen or anything. So at that point, the park rangers uh, had no more tracks to follow, so I returned to Panamint Springs and uh, picked up my wife and continued uh, on to Lone Pine. As a result of that arson, the National Park Service, the rangers of the National Park Service, continued <clears throat> searching the Panamint Mountain Range for any kind of clues or witnesses uh, to uh, the arson on their loader. So the Panamint Mountains were being searched. Few knew about Barker Ranch, but the police and rangers did know that the fire on the loader was set on purpose. It was indeed arson. So they weren't going to stop until they had caught the individuals responsible. A few days later, it was reported that there were hippies living in the mountains. It was said that those hippies drove dune buggies that were described as being patched together from parts of other vehicles, and this tipped authorities off further. The family had been stealing automobiles, after all, for several months, precipitating the initial raid at Spawn. Purcell further stated that Dick Powell, another ranger, continued to investigate the Panamint Mountains, and he took Jim with him on the 29th of September when he would go to Barker Ranch for the very first time. Dick Powell, park ranger, asked me to go along with him. And as I had never been in that part of the monument before, and it was my day off, I accepted the, the ride. I wanted to see what was down in that area. 
in the afternoon of the 29th, we arrived at an area uh, called Barker Ranch, which is really a misnomer the ranch. You think of agriculture, but this is a was probably built as a mining, uh, a prospector's cabin. We uh, drove up to the front of the cabin and uh, noticed a rail dune buggy parked in front minus the engine. Uh, about that time, two young girls exited the cabin and we approached them and uh, asked them if they lived there, questioned them uh, just generally. They had very little to say to us. Uh, we then asked where they indicated they did not live at the cabin. They were just visiting there. But we asked where the occupants of the cabin were, and they told us that there was a prospector uh, who lived there, and at the moment he was down in the Panamint Valley at a little town called Ballarat. So Park Ranger Powell <coughs> and I <coughs> decided to continue down Golder Wash into the Panamint Valley and see if we could meet the party who they were talking about. It was later found out that Manson had likely been hiding in the cabin at the time and told the girls what to say. Powell and Purcell made their way down Golar Wash and on the way down they passed a truck coming up the wash with a teenage boy and a middle-aged man in it. They stopped the truck and noticed that in the back of the truck there were dozens of car parts and a commercial movie camera. They asked the driver about the items and what they were doing. So in the conversation, I uh, finally asked this fellow uh, why, since none of this belonged to him, why he was going to all this trouble to uh, transport all this gear up and down the canyon. And he hesitated for a long time and seemed to think about it. <clears throat> then he said he thought his life depended on it. So all this time the pickup had been idling. So I told him, okay, turn the pickup off and uh, let's really start talking about what's going on here. They talked to the two for several minutes and decided to follow them back up to Barker Ranch. The two park rangers could tell something was very wrong. They got back to Barker and pulled up to the main cabin. The two girls that had been there were gone and the rangers had a conversation with the man and the boy that they had just followed back up to the ranch. The conversation was enlightening about the rituals and goings-on at Barker. We began questioning them uh, more specifically about this group and what they were doing. And it was interesting. I got the impression that uh, they were both trying to convey so much to us, but really without saying uh, a whole lot. And they made sure we realized that the group was uh, in the area they knew who entered and left the cabin and the area and even what was said uh, in the cabins. And about this time I was beginning to get a little nervous and made sure my back was to a wall. And uh, they described these uh, rituals that this group conducted at night that the leader of the group would get in a 
white robe and lead his followers in chants and things like that. And uh, then Brooks Poston was an aspiring musician. He picks up a, a guitar and he begins strumming uh, soft, melancholy music. And uh, I think Dick Powell thought the same thing. We were both wondering just what in the world do we have up here. The two rangers decided to leave through Coyote Canyon, the back way. They got in their truck and headed out. As they were leaving, they noticed a few little outcroppings in the canyon with tire tracks leading up to them. They got out and climbed to a higher vantage point to investigate further. They found a group of females hiding, and some weren't wearing much. Uh, I ran down through our, the draw where we had the Jeep, up the little hill on his side, dropped down into the adjacent draw, and suddenly realized I'm in the midst of a group of females who are attempting to hide behind the creosote bushes, which are extremely sparse desert foliage, and you cannot hide behind one. And I also realized that these females were uh, ran the gamut from totally nude to totally clothed. And I looked up the draw, and Dick Powell was chasing or running uh, away from us, and then he disappeared from view. Many of the women had scattered and were trying not to be caught. Someone important in the family and very loyal to Charlie would be seen next. Uh, one nude female was, uh, turned out to be Squeaky Frome. She was about the only one that would uh, have anything to say to me. In the mid-1970s, Lynette Squeaky Frome would be charged in a failed assassination attempt on President Gerald Ford. As the men continued on, some clues from the arson on the front loader presented themselves as well, and then they bumped into a couple of men. Uh, when we got into the camp, we discovered that there were two vehicles, the red Toyota Land Cruiser that Dick Powell had seen earlier in another location, and a dune buggy covered with uh, tarps and uh, sleeping bags. Clearly tried to camouflage them. So I began asking these girls where they were from, uh, what they were doing there, what was going on. But the only thing they'd tell me is they were a Girl Scout troop from the Bay Area. And they uh, asked if Dick Powell and I would like to join them as their leaders. Uh, about this time, a young male appeared from a little side uh, draw. He identified himself as Charles Montgomery. Uh, <clears throat> he claimed he was simply hitchhiking over on Highway 395 in the Owens Valley and this group of females picked him up and, and he had no idea what they were there for, what they were doing. About this time, Dick Powell finally uh, came back to where I was and uh, he indicated that he had been chasing a male subject who did outrun him. One of the men identified himself as Charles Montgomery, a hitchhiker who had joined up with the group. That was a fake name. The man was, in fact, Tex Watson, the one who had participated in every one of the murders. The other man, who Ranger Powell had been chasing, was actually Charles Manson himself. 
Among the women, it was later determined, were Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkel, who had also participated in the murders the month before. The rangers took the plate numbers of all of the vehicles at the ranch and found that four of them had been stolen. They left and returned to Ballarat and radioed in to Death Valley headquarters, and they were ordered to stay at the mouth of Golar Wash for the night, and the plan was to return to Barker Ranch at daybreak the next morning with a large group of rangers to investigate further. At 4.30 a.m., more rangers met up with Powell and Purcell, and they headed back up to the ranch together. They arrived at the cabin, and those inside were shocked to see the two rangers again, along with the other men. We knocked on the door of the little outbuilding where we had talked with uh, Brooks and Paul the day before, and uh, they came to the door, and they were they seemed genuinely shocked to see us, and we asked why, and they said, well, Manson had come into the cabin the afternoon before, grabbed a shotgun, ran from the cabin, and shortly thereafter, they had heard two shotgun blasts, and uh, they thought sure that uh, Dick and I had been killed. The rangers found out that the night before, the majority of the group had left the ranch in the opposite direction after the rangers had left, for fear that they might be arrested. The rangers searched the entire ranch that day and found more evidence in the form of more stolen dune buggies, but they did not find the rest of the family. They tried to get the local sheriff's office involved so they would have more resources at their disposal, but the sheriff's office decided not to help. It was decided, though, among the rangers that it was obvious that a car theft ring was taking place. It was worth making another appearance at the ranch. Less than two weeks later, Purcell would return to the cabin one last time. In an interview given at a later date to Inside Edition, Purcell explained what happened the night he captured Charles Manson. On October 12, 1969, Officer Purcell led a raid on a prospector's ranch to arrest a group of hippies suspected of arson and auto theft. On previous raids, Purcell and park rangers discovered several stolen dune buggies and arrested some of the cult members. But Charles Manson, their leader, got away. Little did Officer Purcell know that he was about to arrest the most notorious and wanted murder cult and its vicious leader. On our last raid into the area, came to this spot, crouched down to keep the cabin under surveillance. Almost immediately, four male subjects walked right up the driveway toward me. Uh, if I moved, I was sure they would see me, so I just remained still, and they walked right in the, uh, up the front porch and in the door to the cabin. I came down the hill quickly, hid behind the corner of the building, which was intact at that time. Peeked around at the door. About that time, the door opened. A female came out, walked into the middle of the yard. She had washed her hair. She had a towel around it and was drying. She turned around, walked back up the porch into the cabin. Never looked up, never saw me. She had entered the cabin. I quickly moved up to the back door. I had my revolver in my right hand. I ordered everybody to remain still, then ordered them to put their hands over their heads. Waiting most of the day for backup, the sun goes down as they take the family into custody. 
After removing the seven suspects from this room, I entered the cabin, moved to the table, picked up the candle on the table, which was our only light, moved into the next room, checked, moved on into the bathroom, moved the candle around, I lowered the candle down to the partially open cabinet door, and then the little door began swinging open. I stepped back, and a subject uh, emerged from the cupboard, looked at me in a rather high-pitched voice, said, Hi! And then said something about he was glad to get out of that cramped space. When the man stood and Purcell asked who he was, he identified himself as Charles Manson. The main cabin at Barker Ranch burned in 2009. Up until that point, for nearly 40 years from the time the Manson family lived there, it sat in almost exactly the same condition it had been in so many decades before. There also used to be a large bus there, the same one that much of the family took up the Coyote Canyon Road to Barker back in 1969. During the 2000s, the bus was taken down out of the canyon and dismantled. It was part of history, and I wish they wouldn't have touched it. I've seen the bus in old photos, and it added to the look of the place. It's still an amazing place to visit. I got to the top of Golar Wash and to Barker Ranch at about 3.30 in the afternoon on the 4th of July this year. No cell coverage was to be had. I was the only person within 20 miles in any direction. I did pass multiple wild burrows on my way up the wash. It was as if they were there cheering me on to my final destination. When I arrived, the temperature had cooled to around 122 degrees. I walked up to the main cabin. The foundation is still there. I wanted to explore the grounds first, and then I would return and spend more time at the foundation of the cabin. I walked up a side road where some parts of the old dune buggies were still located. One of them had the words Helter Skelter spray-painted on the back of it. It's highly possible that someone in the family may have spray-painted it there as they left the ranch back in late 1969. I also met a little critter, and the thought of that little guy frightens me still to this day. I just saw, I'm walking through the junkyard area of Barker Ranch, I just saw a white translucent scorpion run as fast as a chipmunk. Um, creepiest, one of the top three, I've seen, I've seen some, a lot of creepy stuff in my life. It's one of the top three, probably top two creepiest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, let's go ahead and make it number one. That was creepy. Okay. As you were. When Manson was captured for auto theft in October, he still hadn't been tied to the murders. Bobby Boussoulet was still in custody for the Hinman murder, but it wasn't until November and December of 1969 that the rest of the involved parties would initially be charged with the murders. I mentioned in episodes three and four that Susan Atkins had been in prison in November and she ended up telling her cellmate that she participated in the murder of Sharon Tate. That and the gun used and clothing worn in the Tate murders were located in December. The house of cards began to fall and set the course for the trial the following year. Manson, as well as the others involved, were initially charged with the death penalty for the slayings, but it was later repealed in California, so they got life sentences instead. As I mentioned, Charles Manson died in 2017. He gave a handful of interviews throughout the years. Here is a clip of an interview he had with Diane Sawyer in 1993.
You're so afraid. Are you so afraid uh, of that that that's got your mind locked up? No, I'm so. I don't understand. I Go wanna... over to the morgue and look at all them dead people. Just explain to me, though. I'm not dumb. Explain to me simply why that house that night. Why they which house? There. Which night? The house on Cello Drive, the the Tate House. Why did they go there that night? Uh, because Tex had been there before, and he went to a familiar place. And why did they kill people that night? What did they think uh, they because, were doing uh, for you? They freaked the out, man. They, uh, Tex was stoned. He went, you know, he got, everybody was loaded, man. He said he wasn't. He said he was coming off an LASD trip. He had a little speed. A little said speed. He, well, not around me. He didn't have no speed because I wouldn't allow no speed on that ranch. I kick ass over there. He I says don't allow he that stuff on my, around, around me. I take a little grass, a little LSD, but none of that was destructive. Anyway, you can ask any of them other girls that'll tell you that. The other side of this game, uh, I don't play. Uh, I don't play drugs. I play. I play light, light, you know, light, dibby dabby, chipping. But I don't really get down heavy with it. Um, what did they think they? Are were we ready here, man? Yeah, we're ready. We're ready, 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 ready. We ready here? Okay, ready. War. What did they war. think they were? We are at war now. Manson was always a loose cannon, especially in interviews. After the Scorpion fiasco, I returned to the main cabin. I walked up the steps and headed to the exact area that Manson had been crouched, hiding out under the bathroom cabinet while Ranger Purcell searched the cabin. It's a tiny space. I barely fit. It was surreal to think that I was in the exact space where Charles Manson was last a free man. What is it that causes us to head deep into the desert to seek out the place where a tiny bathroom cabinet once was, where Charles Manson sat as he enjoyed, crouched in the corner of a rustic cabin his last moments of freedom on this earth. Or to go to a museum in Las Vegas to see a wedding dress once worn by a vibrant young Hollywood up-and-comer. I never wish to give power to the perpetrators by perpetuating the stories of their viciousness, but it is, I think, the allure of getting closer to the unknowable, not knowing it, but getting close to it. None of us knows exactly what death looks like, but we are all curious about it. Sometimes it makes us feel calmer knowing the stories that have happened to others and that we are all in this boat together. We might fall in the water and drown tomorrow, but we are now, for the time being, safely on board in this thing called life. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West. Mm -hmm.